Good evening, Wisdom Eccentrics by Nakchang Rinpoche, Chapter 4, Part 2. Finally, a young monk called Pemadorje answered, Yes, Rinpoche, sir, I am speaking English. And, true to his word, he spoke remarkably good English, if slightly Victorian in its construction. He had learned English from an Indian teacher who equipped him with a blue book called First Aid in English. The book contained an example of how to conjugate the word rejoice. Pema Dorje was a Nyingma monk and lived at the Nyingma monastery. The first thing he did was to take me directly to Kunchog Rinpoche, the head lama on the basis that I was some kind of visiting dignitary. I discovered later that this was due to the dark maroon waistcoat that I'd had sewn up by a seamstress in Bristol. It was rather nicely made, even though the elephant ears were ever so slightly elephantine. I didn't know at the time, but only the aristocratic elite wore this colour. Dark maroon fabric was hideously expensive in India, for no reason I could establish. Someone told me that to get that dark maroon colour they had to use a fearful quantity of dye, but I never worked out whether or not that was apocryphal. Kunchog Rinpoche was a wonderful lama, kind, friendly and ebullient. I explained, I've come with a letter of introduction to Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche from Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche. This, of course, sealed the deal. At the mention of carrying a letter from Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche, I was given the visiting Lama's room. I was loaned another set of robes in order that mine could be dried. The shamtab was calf length, as Tibetans are somewhat short on average, so Kunchog Rinpoche grinned when he saw me in a monk's shamtab. Now you are Gelong, he chuckled. Now no Kandro having. You have Kandro? I laughed. Well, Rinpoche, that's a long story, but I may as well be a monk at the moment, unless you have any Tibetan Kandros who are on the lookout for an Inji Nakpa. Kunchog Rinpoche laughed even louder. Oh, yeah, many coming, maybe too many coming, but now maybe you rest. Looks like I'll need to rest, I jested and Kunchog Rinpoche laughed. I was having a real good time. Pemadorje took me to my room and told me that I'd have my supper with Kunchog Rinpoche when I was good and rested. I'd certainly fallen on my feet here. I'd never seen anything quite as wonderful and it was dry. No mould anywhere. No rat no dead bird in the corner. 
I tried saying that the room was too grand for the likes of me, but that simply made it the more obvious to Kunchog Rinpoche that I should stay there and nowhere else. It turned out to be Dujum Rinpoche's room, and that made me feel somewhat uncomfortable. I tried saying that I felt it was improper for me to stay in Dujum Rinpoche's room, but it was to no avail. As it happens, it was raining heavily. It was late. It was dark. Dark as only the countryside can be in a place where there's little or no electricity. It was decided that it would be better that I should go and see Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche the next day. Pema Dorje would be free in the afternoon. Excellent. That would give me the morning to get used to the place that would be my home for the next while. I spent the evening with Kunchog Rinpoche drinking old monk Indian rum. This must be called young monk. Old monks can't drink anymore. Why are old monks with Indian rum wanting? He laughed. We talked of many things, our respective families, Dujum Rinpoche, Nyingma history, funny stories about people he knew and fascinating people in the distant past. He told me that a couple from the USA had travelled through a while back and they'd been extremely distressed. They'd been waylaid and the woman had been raped. The man had been raped as well. They were more upset by the incongruity of violence in peaceful India than by the assault of their persons and begged Kunchog Rinpoche to tell them what it meant that this had happened. I'm sorry, he replied. It means only that you were unlucky. But maybe lucky you are alive. People sometimes are being killed and dangerous for Western people. So maybe better you home going. Many Western Buddhists are actually more or less Hindu in their view and assume that everything means something. They assume that karma accounts for the exact direction the dried mucus flies from your finger when you've picked your nose. This is called eternalism in Buddhism and it's one of the four denials. Karma is how you interpret what happens and how you feel about what happens. Karma is your intention and what you do as a result of your intention. This is often as badly misunderstood by Eastern Buddhists as by their Western counterparts. Kunchog Rinpoche made a wry face about the man having been, having been sodomized and said, yeah, in Tibetan monasteries this also sometimes happening. Maybe it is better they home-going. Jimmy Riggs in Rinpoche told me the same thing about monasteries in Tibet. 
People think Tibetan monasteries were many saints and sages, but also many men, young boys loving. This was quite a shock, but it was good to know the reality of the situation. Tibet was as full of ugliness as it was full of wonders. It wasn't the heaven about which naive Western believers penned eulogies, and it wasn't the hell about which the Chinese propaganda ranted. It was a land inhabited by human beings, the good, the bad and the ugly. Of the good, it must be said that they were good beyond common understanding. Of the bad and ugly, they were no worse than Machiavelli or the Spanish Inquisition. My Tibetan lamas made no secret of this, and so I was surprised when other Western people entertained the notion of Tibet as a paradise on earth. The result of this mismatch was that I said very little when in the company of other Western people. Kunchog Rinpoche was extremely interested in the fact that my father had been in Rawalpindi in 1927 and lived for a time near the Khyber Pass. His eyes widened slightly when I told him that my father had been the engineer who'd overseen the rebuilding of the Great Wall of China. He was responsible for all the financial and material calculations involved. I wished I knew more. I wished I'd asked my father more questions about his army life in India and China, but that was no longer possible. He died just before I left Britain. Kunchog Rinpoche was unusually sympathetic about my father's death, and I asked whether as Buddhists, we should not be completely accepting of death. He smiled warmly. Yes, but still great sadness. That statement has remained with me to the present day and stands out in dark contrast to the comments of many Western Buddhists who tend to be quick to teach impermanence to others just as long as it's not assailing them to any noticeable degree. Why was it that some Western Buddhists were so emotionally deranged? It was a question that I could not ask Kunchog Rinpoche. There was no answer to that question until I researched antisocial personality disorders, and then it all made sense. These people were attracted to Vajrayana because it gave the appearance, from a perverse point of view, of being replete with social climbing possibilities. There were secrets to be had, and secrets to be kept from others as a means of self-aggrandizement. It was no matter to me that evening. I was delighted and monstrously grateful to have spent the evening with Kunchog Rinpoche. I went to bed and slept extremely well. 
Pemadorje was all smiles when he came to take me to my prospective Sawai Lama. My robes were dry and my white shamtab had been mended. There was a perfect, neatly sewn square patch over the hole that the death ray had made. The patch was of a lighter weight cotton so it didn't look or feel ungainly and I was delighted with the workmanship. Sometimes a repaired item can have greater aesthetic appeal than something new. We set off, arrived fairly quickly and were ushered in. The house was ancient and rather beautiful. There was wood everywhere and some was marvellously carved. It was not a wealthy home. There were no gilt ornaments and the furnishings were quite plain, but it was somehow marvellous. It was not Rinpoche's home. He had no home, but he had rooms. He had rooms in diverse places in various parts of the Himalayas. He moved among them, never saying when he was arriving or departing. The Rolling Stones song flitted through my mind. She would never say where she came from. Yesterday it don't matter if it's gone. It was always at times like this that I tended to miss a Western person with whom to exchange repartee. Repartee based on common knowledge and enjoyment. That was a slight sacrifice when compared to the great privilege that lay ahead of me and the great privileges that I'd already experienced. The mistress of the house ushered us into Rinpoche's room and there he sat like the king of the universe. Rinpoche was not the king of the universe because he was grandly dressed. He was simply dressed and his lama's appurtenances were simple. He wore a black tuba with an emerald green shirt beneath it. Both were noticeably faded, but otherwise spotless. He was the king of the universe because it was an indisputable fact of his existence. Other people have noticed it too and said the same thing. Then it struck me that Rinpoche looked like Errol Flynn. The similarity hit me. It was unmistakable. Rinpoche was, in my mind, one of those rare people whose face transcended his race. You'd have to be of another race to see it, so I can't find an English example. Muddy Waters was like that too. There are a whole range of blues artists you can see in photographs. Then you see Muddy Waters and he has that certain attribute that places him 
outside the ordinary range of human beings. Be that as it may, I stood there, feeling as if I were suspended in mid-air and not knowing what to do. Then all hell broke loose. What does this idiot want? Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche almost sighed.